Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, listen, welcome everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, let's open to Mark chapter 11. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 11. And if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles. It's in the rack and the chair in front of you. You can take that Bible if you don't own one and keep it as your own. And if you're not used to looking up passages in the Bible, Mark chapter 11 in particular, we're going to cover the first 11 verses. You can find that on page 847. And we're going to cover a portion of Scripture which is, I think, relatively well known about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And so we've been working through the Gospel of Mark for months now. And we find ourselves now in in Mark 11, as I said, and the next six chapters, Mark 11 through 16, really are just about the last week of Jesus' life. And so that's what the next, uh, most of our summer is going to be finishing up the Gospel of Mark and Mark's account of the last week of Jesus' life. So here's here's what I want to sort of posture you and get in your heart today, that the importance of seeing Jesus rightly and biblically. I, I think there's a truth in the scriptures that says when we behold God rightly, we are in a, in a stream, a posture to become what he has called us to be. So, so later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 that, that we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of God and are being transformed into the image of his Son. And so to, I think the principle there is to, that in order to be transformed into what God has called us to be, in fact destined us to be as we read in Romans 8, we must see God, specifically in this case Jesus rightly. So to behold is the first step in becoming. And so this morning, I want us to to see this beautiful diversity that is Jesus, the triumphant, humble King. Okay, so let me read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and uh, then we'll pray and, and get started. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, here's this triumphal, victorious, really in a sense almost a sort of military-like procession of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem towards the end of his ministry. As I think about just triumphant military, it reminds me of just even this weekend and uh, our, our gratefulness to our men and women in the armed forces. Specifically on Memorial Day, we remember and thank those veterans who have given their lives for us. And so in particular, if you're in the military here today or if you've served in the military in the past, we're grateful for you. We thank you. I just met two young soldiers that are here for the first time today. And so if you see a young soldier, maybe a young guy with a short haircut, um, assume that maybe he's hungry and assume that maybe he could use somebody to pay for his lunch. And so invite that young soldier. Both of the soldiers that I met had young ladies with them. And so um, unlike me, who came here as a young soldier 20 years ago, who on that invitation of lunch at a church in Columbus, got not only a lunch, but a wife. Not there in that one day, <laughs> but that, that to-be wife was the daughter of the invitees, um, or the invitors. I was the invitee. Um, we thank God for our soldiers. So, so thank God for you guys. Praise God for our, our military. But today, yeah, praise God. Give him a hand. But I, I want us to notice as we read this text here before we pray, this really striking diversity, what's going on here. There's Jesus, this triumphal king, who's riding on a donkey. So there's, there's this strange combination of majesty and humility. Jonathan Edwards, maybe the greatest theological mind in the history of America, the preacher behind the great American, the great awakening, uh, the, great arrival, uh, 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 the great revival in American history back in the 1700s. One of the first sermons that he preached and published was a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. And I love just the way he frames it here. This whole sermon was about th- th- this point that there is an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. So what, is, what does this great mind Jonathan Edwards mean by that? He means that there's this incredible spectrum of things that you wouldn't think go together, that go together in Jesus. And the points of his sermon are that in Jesus we have this infinite highness, but yet this infinite condescension. Infinite justice, but yet infinite grace. Infinite glory, but yet lowest humility. Infinite majesty, and transcendent meekness, infinite worthiness of good, and yet the greatest of patience under sufferings of evil, an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth, and absolute sovereignty, but yet with perfect resignation to the will of the Father. And so let me give you the two points right up front before I pray. It's that Jesus is a sovereign, triumphant king, but yet Jesus is a humble, sorrowful king. Jesus is a sovereign, triumphant king, yet Jesus is a humble, sorrowful king. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand 
Lord, we come to you now with great gratitude for your word, that we can open it, that we can read it, that with your help, with the help of your Holy Spirit that, that illuminates your word to us, and with the help of each other that you've given us gifts, the gift of community, the gift of the local church, the gift of shepherds, the gift of teachers to help us think deeply and understand your word. We thank you for that kindness. And we pray today that you'd help us understand and see Jesus rightly, to, to behold him and to become like him. Lord, we thank you for our country. We pray for our president and we pray for our military leaders. We pray for the young men from this church that are currently deployed in Afghanistan. Thank you, Lord, for the young soldiers that are here. Thank you for the veterans that are in this room. We thank you for men and women in this country who've given the ultimate sacrifice of laying down their life for our nation's defense. And Lord, we pray that uh, although we're very grateful to be Americans and we're very thankful for our country, we pray, Lord, that as we look at this text that you would even raise our gaze and our mind towards a greater citizenship and a greater kingdom, the kingdom of our sovereign, humble King Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you'd stir our affections for him and his authority. I pray, Lord, that if there are people in this room that do not yet know Jesus, that they would turn from trusting in themselves, that they would turn from sin and counterfeit pleasure, and they would turn and trust and bow to the only true worthy King Jesus. And I pray these things by your grace, for your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is, has spent the past few years with these incredible ministry of this incredible ministry of miracles, displaying his, his power and authority over sin and sickness and demons and weather. And now he comes into Jerusalem as really a triumphal king. And we, we see in here this, this symbolism of, of Jesus' triumph and we see him we see him really fulfilling prophecy in Zechariah in the Old Testament I'll, I'll flip to Zechariah in, in chapter 9 don't, don't worry about flipping there it's a, it's a difficult one of the smaller prophets towards the end of the the Old Testament this this scene here is really spoken of of Jesus in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 we see this prophet speaking to the nation of Israel, and where we're at in Israel's history is, is that they are under captivity uh, by this Babylonian and then Persian king, and they have been allowed to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and the work is going slow, and the people are discouraged, and there's not the progress that they want to see, which even when you read things like that in the, in the Old Testament... I mean, it, it becomes sort of a, a beautiful picture of not just God's dealing with Israel, which certainly the Old Testament is that, but, he comes, but it becomes a sort of picture of the Christian life, that life is hard and our sanctification is slow and we are, we are prone to discouragement. And in the middle of that discouragement, this prophet comes to the people and he speaks this word of hope to point them to this time, even though they're in captivity, and even though they've uh, been allowed by this pagan king to go back and rebuild their city, they're, they're given this word of encouragement that there's this king coming 
but he's not going to be like any other king. So this is what Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Listen to this. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So hundreds of years before, in the middle of a slowed building campaign, the prophet comes in and utters this little, this little messianic prophecy, this little nugget of hope, which, which seems sort of, I don't know, kind of, well, what does that mean? Is that so significant? Some, some small detail like that. And then we see in this passage, Jesus, knowing that, arranging this, Speaking, apparently, it doesn't say it in the text, to the owner of this colt so that they wouldn't think that the disciples were stealing it, arranging for it, for this, this, this colt that has never been ridden before. And so we see Jesus fulfilling prophecy, sovereign over the ages. So, so, so know that Jesus is sovereign. He's the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. He's not, a, he's not God's solution to the world spinning out of control. Jesus and God's plan of salvation has been, has been uh, on, in God's plan before time began. And we see, we see Jesus' sovereign reign over even little details like the fact that it's a cult that has never been ridden. So, so again in the Old Testament, in, even before the time of the prophets, back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, even before King David came to the throne in Israel, there's this King Saul, and there's this Ark of the Covenant that Moses told the people to establish, and this Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of the law. And this Ark of the Covenant, it's not just like an artifact for an Indiana Jones movie, it's like a real thing in the Old Testament that signified the presence and the holiness of God, and Israel was to carry this around with him. And so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, we see that this Ark of the Covenant, according to God's instruction through the prophet, is to be carried by an unyoked animal, or an animal that has never been used for any other purpose. And, and the importance there is that God is showing His people that service to His holiness, which is carrying His presence around, is to be completely consecrated to Him. He's showing His people His holiness and how service to Him is to be wholehearted and not polluted with any other thing. And so, so in the same way, Jesus is connecting that He is the very presence of God on earth when He's saying, get this colt, this unyoked colt that has never been ridden before. And then, think about this, that, that this cult has never been ridden before. This is just maybe a minor little detail, and, and maybe, quite possibly, I'm, I spent too much time reading this text, and maybe I'm reading into this a little bit too much. But I think there's, there's something kind of really neat in here, is that uh, have you ever ridden a, an unbroken horse or donkey? My mom is a horse person, and she's owned horses ever since I was a little kid, and she would take me out to ride, and my brother would go out. We don't, we're not necessarily horse people, but I would ride, and we had this old horse named Cinco, and I don't know how horses, what their lifespan is. I think they're usually about 20, 25 years. I think Cinco was about 45. He was so old. And, I mean, like a bomb could go off next to Cinco, and Cinco would just keep walking. I mean, he was like just that old horse from the cartoon that just was chewing grass as he walked. 
But since then, Cinco's died, and my mom was about a couple other horses. And one year, we went back to California with my son, Joseph, who's sitting there in the front row. He's 14 now and very capable. But at the time, he was like two years old. And my mom put him on this new horse, and this new horse got spooked. And Joseph kind of got thrown off of this horse and was holding on to the little, little horn on the saddle as, as this horse, Dakota or Doc, I'm not sure which, is, is kind of running around the desert countryside somewhere in Southern California and Northern Mexico. And this horse was sort of halfway broken, but yet horses are difficult to control. Donkeys, colts are difficult to control, but yet Jesus gets on this foal, this colt that has never been ridden, not in a quiet pasture, amongst a crowd that is that is bustling and shouting out to him and going in front of him, laying down palm branches, which would have been a symbol of Israel's national identity. It would be like a a ticker tape parade of Memorial Day, sort of waving the American flag. And he's got this, this animal that's never been ridden before, riding it in complete authority over this unbroken young donkey. Nobody, nobody can, I mean, John Wayne couldn't have pulled that off. Nobody can do that except somebody who is sovereign not only over the waves and sin and demons, but even over this, this unbroken colt donkey. See that little beautiful little detail? Of while, the, while he's marching toward his death, when there's turbulence around him, and we don't read it in Mark's account, but it's, it's in Luke's account. This is, this is in all of the Gospels, the triumphal entry. Uh, he, he's being not only praised by these people, but he's also being heckled by the religious leaders who's saying, tell these people to be quiet. And then in, the, in Luke's account of this, he says that if they're silent, the rocks will cry out. I mean, there's turbulence. This is tension in the air. And in the, the middle of this stress, Jesus takes an unbroken donkey and rides it in complete peace. I mean, think about the peace that the sovereign king of the universe brings. He comes, friends, to die and to rise again and to triumph through willingly in complete control of all of the chaos circling around him by sacrificing himself willingly on the cross. Jesus is a sovereign, triumphant king who is in complete control of the events of his life, who is in complete control of the creation of the world, and is in complete control of every situation every person is facing in this room. But I, I, I get ahead of myself. <laughs> Point number two, Jesus is a humble and sorrowful king. So here, here we get back to Jonathan Edwards' the co-joined, diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. Two things that shouldn't go together. How can, how can Jesus be victorious and sovereign and yet also humble and sorrowful? So, so let's go back again to the, to, the, to the donkey. Don't miss this. I mean, we've read it so many times, I think we can just blow past this when we become familiar with the story. The, the king, not just of Israel, The king of the universe, the creator of the universe, is riding 
into the last week of his life where he's willingly laying down his life to triumph over evil through sacrifice on a donkey. <laughs> on, a, on a donkey. On a donkey. Now, we live right next to Fort Benning, Georgia, which is the home of pomp and circumstance, in which I am very glad about that. Just this last week, a member of my community group, John Fott, was promoted from lieutenant colonel to colonel. And a few of us had the opportunity to go see John. I think John is actually serving in children's ministry. How, how many other places do you have colonels? Look, colonel's a big deal in the Army. I don't know if you know. We've got a colonel taking care of babies right now. That's fantastic in and of itself. But John was promoted to colonel. And a few of us from our community group went to see his promotion. And I, I love the pomp and circumstance of, of the Army. Um, so he was promoted to colonel by another colonel who's the commander of the hospital, who was in his dress uniform, whose chest was full of medals, and the room was packed full of soldiers. And there was not only this colonel, but there were several other colonels. And, and if you've never been in the army, a colonel is like a really big deal. Like if you're a regular soldier just out in a platoon or a company or a battalion somewhere, you, 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 don't, you rarely see colonels. Like if a colonel shows up, he's the guy with the, like the bird on his shoulder. Like, like you stand at attention and you don't speak unless he tells you that you can speak. A colonel is a big deal. And at this particular promotion, there were several other colonels and several other retired generals, right? And so the colonel who's promoting John to colonel is very meticulously paying respect to the commanding officers that are there and to the retired generals that were there and making sure that he mentions, you know, their wives that were there and the whole thing. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not I love that. I eat that up, man. I was like more of this. I mean, it, I, could, I could have sat there all day. It was so good. I was soaking it up. I mean, America. I loved it. I loved it. And I think we should do that in our army. And there should be this incredible authority structure and, and colonels and generals should, we should stand at attention when they walk in the room. I, I mean, I get all that. I eat that up and I want an extra slice of it. But, but notice the contrast that Jesus is the king of the universe. There's this diverse excellency in Jesus. The king creator not riding on a Battalion of stallions are rolling into town with a, with a parade of military attendants behind him on a donkey. Jesus is humble. He's the most powerful human being that ever lived. And yet he's the most humble human being who has ever lived. These things can't go together in anybody but Jesus. And he's not only humble, he's, he's sorrowful, even in the moment of triumph, when people are singing out Hosanna to the highest, which means save us. We read in Luke's account of the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19, right after uh, Luke accounts, gives the account of his entering into Jerusalem. And then in verse 41, right then as he's drawing in, the people are praising him. Luke gives this detail. 
that when he drew near in verse 41 of Luke 19 and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come when you, when your enemies will rise, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And I think what Jesus is speaking to there is not just this great sense of sin coming to us, and we don't realize that Jesus is here. I think that's certainly an application of that. But I think even in more immediately and tangibly, Jesus is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened around AD 7 by AD 70 by the, by the Romans that come and sacked Jerusalem. And yet Jesus looks at his people, and in a sense he, he looks at all people who do not bow down to him and do not worship them, and he weeps over them, even in, in, in this same time when he's completely sovereign over everything. There's this beautiful diversity of excellency in Jesus Christ who is a humble king. He's a sorrowful king. Let me read to you Isaiah 53, that Jesus is going to his moment of greatest triumph, but yet it's also his moment simultaneously of greatest sorrow. So again, in the Old Testament, we see all of the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. So we see we see even in this one text, we see really three beautiful Old Testament signposts pointing to Jesus. We see, as we said in Zechariah, this prophecy about Jesus riding on this donkey. We see in 1 Samuel this allusion to, to Jesus being the presence of God, like the Ark of the Covenant. And we, and we see Jesus preparing as a man of sorrows to fulfill this great, beautiful prophecy of the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. Listen to Isaiah 53, verse 3. And remember that Jesus is not only a sorrowful king, he's also the triumphant, glorious, joyful king at the same time. Isaiah writes this hundreds of years, as Wayne read from Isaiah 9, again, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He writes this about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and yet we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So, so again, notice this, this amazing diversity in Jesus. That he's coming to triumph in this way that we can't imagine. Not by overthrowing, but by laying down so that he can rise again. And even in his moment of great victory, he's also sorrowful over the sin of his people and the sin that he would bear for his people. Jesus is a sovereign, triumphant king. And Jesus is a humble, sorrowful king. So three quick points of application, and then we'll respond. First, I think this text shows us he is in control of every detail of our lives. So friends, when you, when you read Jesus' fulfilling prophecy down to the minutest of details, don't just sort of think of that as, as a sort of apologetic um, truth that helps us defend Christianity against doubters. Certainly it's that. But when we, when we read how Jesus 
is fulfilling hundreds of Old Testament prophecies in his life and his death and his resurrection and how he's arranging details and how he is in complete control even in the most turbulent of times. It, it should give us this amazing confidence that Jesus, nothing happens to Jesus that is outside of his providential control. And likewise, nothing happens in this world that is outside his providential control. And Americans who live in a, in a turbulent time, who are, who are wondering what's going to happen with our economy, with our military, with our political situation, with our future, friends, in a time of insecurity and instability, we need this truth over and over. And friends, I feel like this is something that I keep coming back to over and over and over again. And, and I feel like the scriptures come back to it over and over and over again because what is, what is online here is the glory of a sovereign God who works all things together for his glory and the joy of his people. So listen to these scriptures in Romans 8, 28. You know this verse, most of you. It's, I mean, we have t-shirts with this verse on it. We got, I mean, everything's got this verse on it. This is one of those verses that you just become so familiar with sometimes that you lose, you lose the wonder of the glory of the truth. Romans 8, 28. For those who love God, all things work together for the good of those that have been called according to His purpose. So friends, I've said this often, either all things means everything, or it means nothing at all. Paul doesn't qualify it there. He doesn't just talk about sort of the big, huge, worldwide events. It's not like God sort of has this huge plan, and he winds up the clock and lets the details kind of work themselves out. But God is working everything, everything together for the good of his people and the glory of his name. And friends, that means everything. Everything, that means not only the good, but the bad and everything in between. Ephesians 1 verse 11. God works all things, again, according to the counsel of His will. He arranges the minutest of details for the fulfillment of prophecy. And He works, he works everything, every detail together in our lives for our good. He's in control of every detail of our lives. Application number two. He is, and, and I'm just struck by this. He is approachable because of his humility. Not only is he sovereign and he can control things, but he is humble and therefore he's approachable no matter how unworthy we are. See, do you see this co-joining of diverse excellencies? I mean... Who can go to the, to the general, the, the private in the army whose uniform is out of whack, whose boots aren't shined, whose weapon is dirty, who's, who's got nothing together, would dare not go to the general of the army and approach him. That, that, that would not go well. But do you see here, that there is this glorious, sovereign, creator king who is holy. And in one sense, his holiness makes him unapproachable, but yet he has come to us and laid down his life as a perfect sacrifice to bear the weight of our sins so that we could approach him. And so he's not only big and huge and pomp and circumstance and glorious, 
He's as humble as any human being has ever been, and he is meek and mild, and even the worst and most beat up of sinners can come to him. Friends, just the diversity of the excellency of who Jesus is is awe-inspiring and worthy of worship. In that sermon, listen to what Jonathan Edwards I read this sermon this weekend, and I was, I was blown away at the beauty of these words. Jonathan Edwards preached this sermon. It's called The Excellency of Christ that I've been referring to in his mid-20s, one of the first sermons that he had published. Listen to these words that he has in this sermon about how Jesus is holy but yet approachable. Listen to this. If you come... You need not fear, but that you should be accepted. For he is like a lamb to all that come to him and receives then with infinite grace and tenderness. It is true he has awful majesty. He is a great God and infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the Creator. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven or earth. This may well make the poor, unworthy creature bold in coming to him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion He will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. Oh, friends, this makes me want to run to Jesus. Do you see this? Do you see this, proud men? Do you see this? I mean, this room is full of proud and capable men, and I mean that in a complimentary uh, complimentary sense. Capable men. But do you realize how sometimes our capability and our smarts and our our strength work against us in this American merit-driven world where we want to do, we want to be the guy that has all the answers. We're we're just stoic and solemn and strong. And and, and do you see this excellency, this beauty where we we can humble ourselves and and we can let our guard down and we can go to him no matter what our sin, no matter matter what our anxiety, we can go to Jesus. Do you see this? He's the general who accepts the lowest soldier because he became the lowest soldier so that we could go to him. Do you see that beautiful approachableness of Jesus, the sovereign, humble king? And finally, and I end with this, all of this cries out that he is worthy to be worshipped and not just worshipped, but followed. I think it's it's noteworthy that the week before he's crucified, there's this great crowd. And isn't it sort of odd, it almost seems abrupt, that Jesus enters into the temple, and all of a sudden it's like everybody's gone. It just seems sort of abrupt. I think Mark is, is, is writing that intentionally under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show us this, this contrast between it's one thing to worship him on the road and then he goes into the temple and we're going to read next week where Jesus clears out the temple but there's this conflict immediately and people scatter. And then we, we see on the cross in just a few days where 
many people are crying, crucify him. Now, there's nothing in the Bible that we can point to directly that says that the group of people on the triumphal entry in Palm Sunday are the same people. They're, they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is the king. If they're the same people who a week later are crying, crucify him. But I think it's likely that some of them are the same people. I don't know. But we have this great procession and this great crowd. It's one thing to, to worship him. It's another thing to follow him. And Jesus, the sovereign, humble king, is, is worthy of not just our worship. He's worthy of not just our lip service. He's worthy of not just American nominalism where we say, yeah, I'm a Christian. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our, of our obedience. He's, he's worthy of us actually following him. He's worthy of primacy. He's worthy of centrality. He's worthy to consume every aspect of our lives. Is that the king that you serve, friends? The sovereign, humble king who's worthy not just for parades and lip service, but who's worthy of every aspect of our lives being brought under his good and gracious authority. If you don't know Jesus, it's not complicated. Maybe even now you're realizing that you don't know Jesus. That's God's kind grace to you, opening your heart, showing you that you need to look to Jesus, to look away from yourself and to look to him. As Edwards instructed us, you need to run to the meek and glorious king. And when you go to Jesus, what you're doing is you're going away from yourself. You're going away from sin. You're going away from self-trust. You're going away from self-righteousness. And you're putting your hope and trust in this glorious God who became man and laid down his life to receive the punishment that should have been yours and rose again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences. Do, do you know that, King? Come to him even now, as Edwards urges us. Christian, it, does he have not just your worship, but does he have your followership in your finances, in your sexuality, in your marriage and your job and in, in your habits and your recreation and everything. Is he the Lord over your life? Come together and let's go to the king who is meek and mild and sovereign and glorious and worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Father, as we come now, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray for Christians that we would see and behold rightly Jesus. I pray that if there's any Christians in this room who are caught up in sin or anxiety or despair or discouragement, just as you spoke through the prophet Zechariah, centuries ago to your people with a word of hope in the middle of discouraging drudgery of life, would you speak to your people again that find themselves discouraged and anxious and beaten down? And would you give them a picture of the sovereign, humble, triumphant King Jesus? And would you remind them that you 
in your mind-blowing providence orchestrate everything. Everything, somehow, for the eternal good of your people. As difficult as that truth can be to wrap our minds around, it is glorious and it, it teaches us that life is not these 40 or 60 or 70 or 80 years, but it is life with you forever. And you work all things together for your good. So for the discouraged, the anxious, the sin-beaten-down Christian God, come and speak a word of hope to the holy, humble King. Show them the holy, humble King Jesus. Father, to the the friend in this room who does not know Jesus, would you show them, would you give them eyes, would you cause their blindness to turn to sight? Just like you did for Bartimaeus, which we read about last week, would you cause them to see Jesus rightly? This holy, sovereign king who demands their life and their worship, but yet this holy, humble, sorrowful king who gives his own life so that they can give what he demands. Lord, would you captivate that person's heart for the first time with the beauty of Jesus so that they would run to him as Edwards exhorts us. Run to him even now. Look to Jesus. and Love him. Lord, would you do that today as we worship you and respond to you in song and worship communion and prayer. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.